Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. We're highlighting remarks made by former State Representative Peter Breen during a Will County Republican banquet. Mr. Breen is the executive vice president and the head of litigation for the Chicago-based Thomas More Society, a national public interest law firm. Mr. Breen spoke about the legal fight against a new law backed by Planned Parenthood. State Senate Bill 1909 could potentially fine and litigate pro-life pregnancy care centers out of business. Toward the end of his comments, he refers to Riley Gaines, a former NCAA female swimmer who is speaking out for the safety of women, their privacy, and the integrity of women's sports. I want to talk a little bit tonight about the way we win. And one example of that was a bill called Senate Bill 1909. Now, you might have seen in the midst of the mess of the legislature we just went through, and it's always a mess uh, with this uh, cast of characters in Springfield, other than our good cast of characters, please. They put this bill out to call pro-life speech misinformation. That's literally in the bill. They used misinformation. After we, the last three years of what we've been through, the Illinois General Assembly had the gall to call our pro-life speech misinformation. The American people are tired of this trash. The government's going to tell you what's true or false, and of course then they're wrong, and then they're oh, oh, well, we were right the whole time, you know, we, you know, whatever. But this was an example of a big win for our side. This is a bill that came into the legislature earlier this year, right at the beginning of the session it got put in. The activists uh, from the pro-life side figured out this is a huge threat, identified it right away, worked with our good legislators to flag this thing, make sure that we were going to look at it, and then called us in the attorneys, and we started to develop a strategy from day one. We were on top of this in a way that I have not seen us on top of a bill in a long time. To the point that when the attorney general's uh, representative comes into the House committee, our legislators are prepped with a list of questions, and we are right on top of it. The attorney general's representative said, well, we've had numerous reports and complaints about these pregnancy centers and these pro-life people. Okay, fine. You know, and then they answered the questions, and of course they were being evasive. They'd be asked questions like, well, well can, you, can you say abortion is a sin? Well, we'd determine that on a case-by-case -case basis. Case-by-case, -case, that's your government. And so, you know, a variety of other things, you know, and, and they were saying, well, well, you're overstating the risks of abortion. And we're sitting there going, you're going to have Planned Parenthood tell me what the risks of abortion are. Excuse me? It's a free country still, I thought. And, you know, they're saying, well, no, abortion doesn't do anything bad. It's actually, you know, hearts, flowers, and unicorns. But here was the deal. So with that, that committee hearing ends. We're immediately on getting a FOIA request over to the Attorney General's office saying, General, let, give us all your reports and complaints for the last 10 years. And you could just tell, you've questioned us, really? And so we go through, and the Senate passes it through their chamber, and we start getting the FOIA requests back. They had no reports or complaints. Now, you, now you've kind of, you're playing into our hands. Now look at it this way. We're going to lose. We know we're going to lose this bill, but what are we doing? We're using the tools available to us to effectively work against what they were doing. On the House side, we get over to the House, and we are just, you know, we're loaded for bear at this point. 
got the FOIA request sitting there in the hands of our legislators. And in the House committee, we only had three members on that committee, but they were all healthcare professionals. You get a bunch of healthcare professionals in there, and you're going to start telling them what medicine is and is not to be, and you're going to make these claims about reports and complaints when you have zero evidence of reports or complaints. They just went off. And so we, we reacted vigorously, knowing the whole time we're going to lose the vote. But what did they do uh, in that committee and on the House floor? Beautiful floor work. I mean, just incisive questions, sharp, pointed. On the House floor, our legislators, ladies and gentlemen in our House, got into the record that Kwame Raoul was sitting next to the chief House sponsor while she's answering the questions that they're lobbying at her about this bill. The big deal is, I put it in the court record afterwards. And so we had all this thing built up so that when, when they were going to put this thing through, and of course they pass it, and Pritzker took his time signing it, we had all the legal papers drafted up. I had everything transcribed, every word that was said, so that when he finally signed that thing on July 27th, we had the lawsuit on file at 1 o'clock, over to the Attorney General's office. Oh, but even better, even better. At 2 o'clock was the AG's press conference. So he gets up there, he's in front of a Planned Parenthood banner and talking about how terrible these pregnancy centers are and all this business. You know, somebody asked him a softball question. And then they started asking him real questions. They said, well, well, General, what about this lawsuit that just got filed against you? And every question after that was, what about the lawsuit? What about the lawsuit? Well, they say this in the lawsuit. What about the lawsuit? We took control of that narrative away from them. Yeah, they passed their bill, they can pass whatever they want, but we took the control of the narrative away so that on the evening news it was about the lawsuit, not about his bill. Well, then we go to court, and we have filed, we drafted it, so I'm like, I'm a little biased, but we had a beautiful set of legal papers, 55-page complaint, 31-page memo, and hundreds of pages of evidence. We had the whole FOIA request showing there were no complaints. Wonderful arguments. We did, I mean, our, our team did a great job. And so the judge set a hearing for a week later, and we walk in there, and I, here was the thing. The night before the hearing, the judge says, I've got this, he sent, issues us a three-page list of questions, which is not normal. It's actually kind of nice, you, know, you get to know what the judge is thinking. But he said, I would like some live witnesses to please address the factual questions that I have. And so you're sitting here going, oh, you, know, you know, judge, that's tomorrow at one o'clock. So I'm on the horn with NIFLA, which is the national, one of the national pregnancy center groups, and they fly a person in from New Jersey first thing in the morning. You know, we get our folks in from the pregnancy centers, from the pro-life groups. And so we are there at 1 o'clock, you know, just ready to go. And the state AG didn't bring anybody. So we go into our hearing. We put on about five hours of testimony. And we take, you know, we kept the judge pretty late that evening. And then we get to the legal argument part. And the judge just, he'd had enough. And he went after the attorney general, or the attorney general's representative, and said, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Why are you here? What do you think this bill is constitutional? And I don't want to put words in the judge's mouth because it's very dangerous to do. You know, we get the transcript and all that. So the judge issues his order. He said, this is painfully unconstitutional. And his order the next day actually called the bill stupid. He was quoting Justice Scalia, so it was okay. But it was a great example, and so the injunction was entered right away. It created national news. Illinois had the worst anti-speech you know, life bill that had been put across the line in this term. And now national news, enjoined by the judge, called it stupid, painfully unconstitutional. So that was an example of where we could win. You could take the other side's overreach 
and get a big win out of it and turn the media narrative to our kind of our direction. You know, we did the same thing with Mark Houck. He was the, the pro-life advocate in Philadelphia. If you remember him, he was, he was the one who was awakened at 7 o'clock in the morning with 25 federal agents at his front door out in rural Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, with his seven kids waiting upstairs, you know, screaming and crying, and long guns, ballistic shields. It was the same thing there. The other side overreached. They took an innocent man into custody, and so we said, we're not going to let you do that. So we pounded them in the media. You know, did everything humanly possible to highlight his story. Congress came in and has helped. And when we were able to get the not guilty verdict for him in federal district court in Philadelphia, we trumpeted it to the heavens. And we made them, I mean, so that every time a DOJ official testifies in front of Congress, he gets asked about Mark Houck. Like every single time. You check. Like there's always somebody that's going, what about Mark Houck? You know, and it, so that is some of the way that we can, can do our work. And it, I mention it to us here because we are in a blue state. We are on the defense, and so we have to take some of these more guerrilla tactic wins uh, just because of where we are and who we are. I'll tell you, though, I, I was speaking at a, a state legislator conference in Utah, and it was blue state, red state, purple state, everybody all together. And, you know, the red states, it's downhill sledding. You know, I, I used to tell groups, and you know, kind of talk about Tennessee, that, you know, if you were in Tennessee right now, you know, you wouldn't be at this banquet. You'd be out hunting and fishing because there's really nothing to do. You know, it's all conservative. Everything's great. Yeah, you know, thank God that you're in Illinois. The good Lord puts you here for a reason to fix things. You know, you've got something to do here. But I'm going to keep talking about Tennessee because, you know, I, my family was transferred here in 1986. The mid-80s were horrible economically, especially for DuPont. They had the asbestos issues. And my dad had three kids under the age of 10, and they said, well, you know, we're not sure if the plant's going to stay open, so we'll transfer you. We'll offer to do that. Or you can stay here and roll the dice, take your chances. Again, he's got three kids under the age of 10, so he can't roll the dice and take his chances. He tried like nobody's business to get a job. He's a mechanical engineer. Actually, had a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Notre Dame. Tried to get another job in Nashville, Tennessee. Could not find another job. Mid-1980s. He gets transferred to a place called Naperville, which had about maybe 60,000 people at the time. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm sure I, I don't remember the numbers. But, you know, there was a farm at the end of our subdivision where we lived and everything. And, uh, you know, it was obviously a small, growing community at that time. We came to a place that was wonderful. Now, the houses cost too much. and The taxes were a little too high. But it was wonderful. It was a great place for me to grow up in the 80s and 90s for me and my siblings. And Tennessee was on rough spot, rough, a rough patch. Now, I went back, went to Vanderbilt for college, and I was in the College Republicans. Um, and so my first election, as a, when I turned 18, was to flip the Tennessee Senate delegation, the Tennessee congressional delegation, it was the 1994 election, and flip the governor. I don't know if you guys remember Fred Thompson and Bill Frist, and the governor was a guy named Don Sunquist. And it was an incredible feeling. But Tennessee then, they flipped, and then spent the last 35 years taking what was kind of a corrupt state. Tennessee was a corrupt, I mean, there was a lot of bad stuff going on back then. But they did pro-free market, they did conservative, they did good government. And so Illinois, over the last 35 years, we've kind of used our advantage and we've leaned on really the work of people before us to make this state great. Tennessee decided to move up and take the decisions that needed to be made to get better. And so now it's a place where you don't ever hear of anyone moving from Tennessee to Illinois. They're moving in the other direction. I cite it to you because it wasn't always that way. And it doesn't always have to be that way. And there's nothing stopping us here in Illinois from taking the steps necessary to fix our state. And I'll tell you something, in Tennessee, 
I mean, it took a little while actually to flip the legislature. So they flipped the Congress first and then eventually flipped the legislature. But I mean, when that thing flipped, it was a lot of work, a lot of fits and starts and up and down. And, you know, in the state of Tennessee, a Republican legislature, you know, I mean, Tennessee's in the South. I don't, you know, they hadn't had a Republican legislature ever. And so when it happened, it was an incredible win for our side. It was, it was you know, it wouldn't have been in your, even in your consciousness that it could have happened. So I offer that to you as, as maybe a, a measure of hope. So I give you kind of immediate things you can do right now, a little bit of hope for the future. And I want to brag on Riley real quick. I, I have a lawyer, uh, one of our colleagues, we, we have lawyers all over the country at Thomas More. One is a guy in North Carolina, and he said, he said to me, I just happened to mention, I said, hey, I'm going to go speak at this thing. I'm the undercard for Riley Gaines. He said, you thank her because North Carolina passed their prohibition on biological men playing in women's sports because of her. She's the reason. So thank you, Riley, for that. You know, one little thing. Do you all remember North Carolina in 2016? Do you remember we called it the bathroom bill, where they just said the men should stay in the men's and the ladies should stay in the ladies? Do you remember that that bill was so badly tarred, we lost our Republican governorship and our Republican control of the state. They had to repeal the thing because of the nationwide outrage. And I was, I was observing to my North Carolina colleague the other day, I said, if they want to pass the bathroom bill today, it passed 100 to nothing. So things can change. I mean, imagine, we went from that, where you pretty much, you lose your, your statewide officers for passing a bill like that to today, where we're sitting here applauding it, and you get super majorities that are in support of it in North Carolina, just in that state. And that state's gotten more liberal, probably, in the last you know, eight, 10 years than it was back then. I thank you so much for inviting me here tonight. Keep up the great work. God bless you. Attorney Peter Breen with the Chicago-based Thomas More Society, thomasmoresociety.org. More is spelled M-O-R-E. After timeout, Q&A with Scott Klusendorp with the Life Training Institute. America's chaplain faces jail time for the crime of being an American. Chaplain Stephen Lee tells his story 6.30 p.m. Friday, January 12th at the Church of Christian Liberty in Arlington Heights. Find out more at IllinoisFamily.org. We're going to fight this thing. This is bigger than me. When disasters strike, Chaplain Lee provides pastoral care. He comforted after 9-11, Columbine, and when 2020 election fraud charges surfaced in Georgia, he offered spiritual help and guidance, but a left-wing prosecutor wants to silence him. This transcends politics, things like faith, family, and freedom, and so we're going to stand. Help Chaplain Lee fight for freedom. Join him 6.30 p.m. Friday, January 12th at the Church of Christian Liberty in Arlington Heights. Find out more at IllinoisFamily.org, IllinoisFamily.org. a woman to look at culture from a Christian worldview, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. In a commentary last week, I discussed the tragic popularity of the new 988 National Suicide Hotline. Dramatic spikes in suicides and suicidality make this kind of intervention and others like it necessary to prevent people from making an irreversible decision. I'm thankful, however, that friends at the Restored Hope Network let me know that the hotline directs those who identify as LGBTQ to the Trevor Project, a radical advocacy group whose aim is to push young people toward sexual confusion. 
In this way, the new hotline is undermining its own ends. Teens who identify as LGBTQ are four times more likely to contemplate and attempt suicide and more likely to struggle with other mental illnesses. The Trevor Project claims this is due to stigma, not mental illness, but that assertion doesn't make any sense. The suicide rate has continued to rise even as cultural acceptance of LGBTQ ideology and identity has. Look, Christians have to take the lead in suicide prevention. To learn how, go to colsoncenter.org slash hope always. That's colsoncenter.org slash hope always. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight for this segment, some Q&A with pro-life apologist Scott Klusendorf. Mr. Klusendorf is the president of the Life Training Institute and was the featured speaker during the Illinois Family Institute's March 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. After his presentations, he took a few questions, including one about Summit Ministries. Summit Ministries. Summit Ministries, it sounds like I'm giving a plug here that I am employed by them. I'm not. I'm faculty there, but I absolutely believe in it. What we are finding is that our students are going off to the secular university, and guess what's happening? They're not only being, failing to be confident witnesses for Christ, they're absorbing the premises of the secular culture around us because we haven't equipped them, haven't inoculated them against that, those beliefs. When students come to Summit, they get me on day one, and guess who they meet first? They don't meet me, they meet Dr. Zeke Diversity. I show up on stage dressed in character as a UCLA professor in metaphysics and epistemology, and I absolutely destroy their pro-life beliefs. If I had more time, I would have thrown Dr. Zeke on you. I would have talked all of you out of your pro-life beliefs, pretty much. He's that good. And I take the best arguments the other side has, and I throw them at these students, and they're just like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And then I spend the rest of the day debunking Dr. Zeke, and they listen. They are dialed in at that point. And that's because if we don't expose students to what they're going to face when they get to that secular place in the workplace or the college, they're going to get run over by things they've never had discussed. When my daughter was seven, I started her on supper syllogisms. That's what we called it. And uh, I, would, I taught her what logic looked like. And then we would play games. We would, I would make phony syllogisms. My favorite was... Premise one, Emily is a sinner. Premise two, Emily is living. Therefore, Emily is living in sin. And it became a big, you know, I mean, it's phony, but it was funny in a way to teach logic to her exactly as, as was discussed we needed to do. And this is what we got to do with our kids and grandkids. Teach them to think. And Summit teaches them how to think biblically. Summit.org. For those of you that would like more information on me, ProLifeTraining.com. ProLifeTraining.com is my website. All right. Uh, do you have training for adults that you are explaining for youth? I am chronologically challenged. I discriminate against everybody over 19. So, no, I'm kidding. Uh, yes, we do. If you go to the Colson's, actually, there's a couple of places you can get training from me. By the way, can I give a plug for the Colson Center? Any of you that have not thought about becoming a Colson Fellow, you ought to. It is a very intense training for adult. That's one way you can get my training. I'm also a faculty member there. But... At Frank Turek's site, crossexamine.org, some of you know the Christian apologist Frank Turek, crossexamine.org, I have a course there called The Ethics of Abortion, a 10-week self-paced study. 
But you take a deep dive into Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, David Boonin, the best the other side has to offer, and you learn how to defend your pro-life view against people like that. And that gives you the foundation for being persuasive when you talk to others that may be at church or in the culture that you're trying to engage. Divided we fall, what do we do about churches, church organizations that are not pro-life? You mean basically all of them? Sorry, forgive the snark. The answer is, again, if we do not change how people feel about abortion, it's very difficult to change how they think and ultimately behave. And I'm a living proof of this. I was an associate pastor in Southern California, and at age 30, the local pregnancy center director started bugging me to get involved. And I would be very polite and, you know, just kind of say, oh, yeah, that's nice. And I'd show up at her banquet once a year, give an obligatory hundred bucks and go home and think I'm done. I did my pro-life duty. And finally, she just kept after me. By the way, there is an argument here for persistence. It works. And she kept after me. And she said, I want you to come to a pastor's breakfast that we're doing next Saturday. You're going to like the speaker. He's a former member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He wrote the bill there that cut off tax funding for abortion. He's a lawyer. He's intelligent. I promise you, he won't hurt the brain to listen to. And I went... And honestly, I'd been turned off by some pro-life speakers who I thought didn't do a very good job defending their view. This guy did. He stood up. It was Greg Cunningham, Center for Bioethical Reform. He laid out a case for the pro-life view, but then, men and women, he did something that fundamentally changed my life. He showed an eight-minute video. I sat there, and I wept profusely, and here's why. I thought, I am no different than the priest and the Levite who pass by on the other side of the road. I say I care about this issue, but I'm not lifting a finger to stop it. And I went home that day and I took the VHS tape he showed. VHS tapes were these rectangular things that <laughs> some of you may remember. And I showed that to my wife and I said, honey, I feel like my whole world's just been rocked. And six months later, with the blessing of the church where I was an associate pastor, I left to pursue how I could train pro-life Christians to make a case for the pro-life view. What changed me? seeing those images, because when a pastor is more brokenhearted over abortion than he is terrified about preaching on it, he will preach. But if he's not more brokenhearted, he's not going to take the flack he might get for preaching on it. So the answer is our leaders need to be brokenhearted over this issue. Uh, sir, you had a question. Yeah, first of all, thanks, thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. It seems like in the last two elections, abortion has been a huge issue and it just doesn't seem like even pro-life politicians cannot make an argument that is persuasive to people. Are you involved with talking with politicians that are pro-life and helping them to be able to persuasively make their argument for pro-life? I have at some level. Here is the soundbite I wish every pro-life politician would make. It's very short. It takes seven seconds to deliver. And by the way, that's about all you're going to get on the evening news, so you better make it count. Here's the soundbite they need to give. Go back to our syllogism. What they need to say is this. I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Period. Stop. Rinse. Repeat a million times. Do not let them take you down other trails. And people get in trouble when they start then letting the media say, what about this? What about that? 
As I said a moment ago, I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Just keep repeating that. I don't care how angry they get at you. It's clear, it conveys the force of our argument, and it avoids rabbit trails and traps. If there's one message that the people absolutely have to take out of here and speak with their family and friends with about this, their lawmakers, what would it be? It would be that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, and that's why we oppose abortion. All right. Thank you, Scott Klusendorf. Thank Let's you. Let's thank him. Scott Klusendorf, the president of the Life Training Institute during the Illinois Family Institute's March 2023 Worldview Conference at the Village Church of Barrington. You can find his Worldview Conference presentations on the IFI YouTube channel. He mentioned a couple of websites, summit.org, prolifetraining.com, and crossexamined.com. Please support the work of the Illinois Family Institute. All donations are tax-deductible, and throughout December will be matched dollar for dollar up to $100,000 and perhaps even more. Go to illinoisfamily.org to give and for updates. And while you're there, sign on for IFI email alerts. Keep IFI in your prayers and tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight. Until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.